Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. This is the Educated Home Buyer. Everything you need to know to buy right, borrow smart, and build wealth through real estate ownership. Welcome back, guys, to another episode of the Educated Home Buyer Live. So here we are tonight, uh, updating you guys on the housing market, on everything housing related. So, with that, Josh, um, you know, I was out last week. You did the episode on the Educated Home Buyer podcast, and I just want to take a minute here and say thank you guys for all the support. I hit ninety nine thousand subs on my channel this morning. So. Um, thousand away by this time next week, probably sitting at a hundred thousand. And it is because of you guys, I know it's just a vain metric, but it's something I've been shooting for, for the better part of three and a half, four years. So it's, um, you know, it's a, a goal in the making and without you guys, that wouldn't be happening. So, uh, and then Josh on the, on the same token, we're hitting 3,500 or so on, uh, our podcast, 3,100, 3,200, something like that. Yeah, it should be 3,200 in the next couple of days, adding about 100 a week. So the more people we can get to, the more people we can help with information and whatnot. All right. And so, guys, you know, we we appreciate you. Uh, so what we're going to do is what we always do, and that is go over what is actually happening with inventory, with demand, what's happening in the economy, what's actually pushing housing in multiple directions, and uh, just kind of keep you guys moving in the right direction with all of that info. Uh, We always start with inventory and that's exactly what we're going to do this week. We are going to update you on what's happening here locally as well as nationwide. So we're starting to see inventory trickle down a little bit nationwide, which is something that we saw last year as well. So last year we started the year with kind of the highest number of properties for that year until we peaked above that number. Um, towards the end of the year in November, which is not normal, right? Inventory continues to grow, typically speaking, from January all the way through until about October, November, and then you start to see the numbers decrease. Uh, Last year, you know, was different. We saw the highest number at the beginning of the year, and then it kind of trickled all the way down until November. This year, we actually saw inventory grow, so new listings were growing, and we've seen them grow week over week, but we're actually seeing the total supply go down and that's because we've seen this pickup in buyer demand. So currently sitting around 500,000 active homes nationwide, that's actually less than last week. Uh, but you're going to see it's more than we were the same time last year. Orange County currently sitting at 1,833 homes. That's less than we were last week. And Huntington beach is sitting at 138, which is the lowest number of properties that we've seen on the market since April of last year. So Inventory is going the wrong direction for a housing recovery, if you will, because without supply on the market, you're not going to get transactions. And without transactions, you're going to have this slow kind of housing market. What we've seen over the last year or so, and we're more or less looking to to repeat it if something doesn't change. But as I said, we saw a jump in new listings. 
Um, 20, uh, so 2024, 44,167 new listings versus last year, we were sitting somewhere around 40,000. And then you can see, if you're looking at this chart here, it's all the way back on the left-hand side. So it's a little bit confusing. It's a darker number. So you can see it's increasing, but this is a better chart to kind of see what we're seeing here. So you had about 45, what did it say? 46, 44,000 new listings, 7% more than this time last year. But Look at historically speaking, all of those other lines that are above it were well below those lines, which is one of the things that's keeping inventory lower um, at this time. Weekly change, we fell from 503 to 497, 389. Last year, same week, we went from 466 to 457. So significantly more than the same week last year, but still not going the right direction. We need more property on the market and uh, something we talk about week over week. So normal range of price reductions is somewhere around 33% or so. Um, we're in that normal range at the moment, sitting just above 30% with uh, with regards to the number of homes being reduced on the market. So the fact that you see some homes have to reduce price, somewhat normal um, in any market, um, and, we're, and we're right in that range at the, at the time we're filming this video. Uh, median home price starting to tick up a little bit, sitting at uh, 424. Median price of new listing also ticking up a little bit, sitting somewhere around 399. And this, Josh, I wish I could read it, but it's so small on the screen that I'm looking at that I have no idea what chart I'm looking at. It's this that is- chart showing the bank term lending or bank term funding program. So last year uh, in the spring, when we started having issues with some of the banks and their liquidity issues, the Fed stepped in and allowed them to hand over some assets to get liquidity, but they had to pay it back within 12 months. So if we kick back uh, to that last slide, Jeb, the important part is we've seen a couple things. There was a bunch of money borrowed. It stayed flat for the grant part of the year. And now it's ticked up now that all of that money is coming due. So all this is showing here is unrealized gains and losses on investment securities. So they're either held to maturity securities, which are the blue, and the gold is just showing uh, what is available for sale, what they're attempting to sell. But almost everything there is is underwater. So those are the assets that they are able to to put up under this program. And when we look at it, did we lose our, our, our good one? That's the one we want, Jeb. Yeah, there we go. We're good now, right? So this, exactly. New York uh, Community Bank Corp bought, uh, was it Silicon Valley Bank last year? They were the one that took over those assets and had a big run on them. So the only reason really why we throw these in here this week is we had a question last week. Wednesday was the Fed meeting and someone said, hey, did he talk about banks? What did Powell say about the banks? There's definitely some stress there. Um, The government, it's not big enough that the government can't step in and do something. Hopefully it's not too big. Maybe they just extend that uh, program that we were talking about. But wanted to throw it up there, give you guys some insight into that. Um, important measure here, trueflation. That's a, a very, very high correlation to the Fed's CPI tracking moving forward. Uh, it's just showing more real-time data, down to 1.45%. Well, last week, I believe we were still in the 1.9 range. So trending down rather rapidly. Some additional uh, thoughts here in terms of deflation. ISM services inventory sentiment, uh, inventory is too low. So basically, no one is believing that inventory is too low, which means we're not going to have a bunch of factory orders to replenish inventories. The other one there is core goods, CPI inflation back there, right basically at, at zero, continuing again to show not deflation, but disinflation there in the system. 
Jeb, uh, both last week on the live show uh, and this Tuesday, we released uh, basically what when's the Fed going to lower rates? And we had great timing on that, Jeb, because we recorded it last Tuesday. The Fed met Wednesday. Uh, then we had a non-farms payroll report that was uh, unbelievably excellent on the headline, which is all that the media The economy is doing great. It's all great. Everything's perfect. Yeah, everything's and, good. And then Sunday night, Powell goes on 60 Minutes, which is really unprecedented. They don't go on. Um, obviously, he wanted to control the narrative a little bit more than the press conference last Wednesday. But of course, we had re recorded the previous Tuesday. We, we released this Tuesday. So a lot of feedback, a lot of comments, people saying, oh, you're crazy. We shouldn't lower rates. Keep rates higher. So there's a couple fallacies there. One, that if the Fed caused problems by taking rates too low and leaving them too low for too long, that we can fix that by taking them too high and keeping them higher for longer. It just creates new and different problems. But this is to show you, we, we talked a lot in that episode, Jeb, about the real Fed funds rate. This only goes back to 04 or so. The problem here is that red box and how long the government allowed rates to stay that negative. That is a, incredibly accommodative. When we say the Fed should lower rates, no one is saying we should have negative real rates here. It's saying that if we're at one, four, five, or two on inflation versus the three, three and a half that is in their numbers right now, we are much more restrictive than anyone thinks with a lot of data here that we're going to go through that shows that we're not in the greatest position of strength that a lot of the data the government's been putting out says we are. Um, we had some comments, Jeb, a few weeks back that, hey, we have the issue with the Houthi rebels are uh, attacking ships. So this shows that traffic the Suez Canal is down 50%. So this doesn't mean goods are not getting to market. It means they're taking the long way and it's more expensive. So in terms of that, um, that's something that could be inflationary. We talked about Jeb last week. We have this wonderful blockbuster, amazing non-farms payroll report three days after ADP. So you see the red downtrending line. It's been pretty consistent. ADP is going down, down, down. And we keep getting these revisions and changes uh, from the, the Bureau of Labor Statistics saying that things are wonderful. So wanted to show this. Uh, this is the ADP data. And this goes back to 2011 when they first started doing uh, this. And it shows the percent change in jobs from the year over year. So we normal is one to two and a half percent change increase in jobs year over year. We had a big dip right when COVID came. Predictably, we had a big spike coming out of that and kind of overshot. And we're going to see on another chart here that we've replaced all the jobs that were lost and then some. But if you look, that is dipping and trending down per ADP and right back into the normal range. So that's not to say we're in massive contraction or headed to some terrible recession. It's to tell you that it's not as good as what you're seeing in that NFP report. Um, this again here is from the NFP report, full-time employment. So if you look there to the right, Jeb, we are at zero. We've created zero net full-time jobs in the last year. And every time we've hit a peak and trended down, it was just before a recession. So if you look at that time back there in 84, it took almost four or five years. It trended down, went sideways, and didn't see a recession until 89. Other than that, every one of these times where we've hit a peak and trended down, once it goes negative, you are in a, a recession. So we have a million signals and people keep saying, eh, haven't had a recession yet. You guys are dumb. All your signals don't work. Um, this is a chart here shows by industry, the jobs that were lost during the pandemic and where we are now. Every industry is back positive. And what that is to say is that over the last year or two is that um, it, it was expected that we would have pretty big jobs reports because we had to replace the jobs that were lost, especially in hospitality. 
So this here, again, where, where are we at? We're zero net job creation. We've seen the big layoffs. This is again, just Google trends, people searching for laid off and searching for file unemployment. The laid off is, is bumping up and we're now seeing trend up for filing unemployment. Um, this here, again, another thing, just showing, we've talked about the excess savings. This is the savings rate as a share of disposable personal income. We're down here back at the lowest level. What This chart goes back to 1960 and other than a period of time during the Great Recession. That's the worst that we've seen it, Jeb. Um, we get a lot of folks that think that government intervention is a good thing and is going to fix all of our problems. Uh, and this chart just shows you when we talk about inflation, what is the source of inflation? If you see all those things up there in red, those are things that the government has their hands heavily in. Hospital services, Medicare, insurance, um, college tuition and fees. We've got student loans. All of those things uh, are, are things that have heavy government influence. This one here, Jeb, uh, just again, a reminder, this could be uh, something that could be construed to either mean, hey, higher rates coming or a slowing economy and lower rates. Everyone knows we're at 34 trillion with a T on the, the federal debt. But what most people don't know is 8.9 trillion of that will mature over the next year. What that means is the government doesn't have a checkbook where they just go and, and pay that off. They come back, they issue more treasuries. Rates are much higher than the maturing treasuries that they are paying off. This here, Jeb, just going back to December, we had that nice run up in bond prices and we've pretty much been sideways here for the better part of a month, 2024, got off to a sideways, we've gone up, we've gone down, but really haven't gone anywhere since about the middle of December. The 10 year has been a little more volatile. We talked about this over the last couple of weeks. We have a hard ceiling, semi-hard ceiling up at 443, but 419 is resistance on the way up, 427 is stronger resistance. And we just in the last week, Jeb, since the last, uh, since the last show, we had, we had seen it as low as 387, somewhere in that range, but 395, 409. So for the foreseeable future, until we start seeing CPI and PCE reflecting these, this lower rate of inflation, and then on top of that, uh, weaker jobs reports rather than the, the wonderful headline data we've seen, will likely to continue trending sideways. Mortgage News Daily's report 695 as the average rate today, Optimal Blue a little bit lower at 668, and FHA VA lower 619 and 65 per optimal blue. So there are pretty good ranges to, uh, depending on your qualifications of what you are likely to be looking at in terms of an interest rate. All right, good stuff. So guys, there's your market update. Um, you know, we got some regular viewers in the room, regular in the sense that they show up every single week. And with that, give a shout out to Matt, uh, Matty Skull there. Um, what? driving and watching the show is that what we're doing is that what i'm seeing there from uh from people that are commenting uh on the on the video uh with that guys we also not really a lot of questions tonight there's only 58 people watching we are doing something wrong here josh omar effects has a question for you any advice for an investment property Duplex specifically. So uh, Omar, you truly uh, an investment property. You're not going to own or occupy and use that property as your primary residence. Um, if so, uh, we have, you know, with, with that, you're looking at a bigger down payment is what it's going to come down to. We can do the owner-occupied units now with as little as 5% down. Uh, but once you go to an investment property, it's going to require a, a bigger down payment. So it's a little bit of an interesting picture if that is, is what you're looking at doing. But Jeb, from the real estate side, any thoughts, ideas for, uh, for someone looking to invest in multi-units? 
Not really. I mean, you, you know, the, the first steps to get pre-approved, right? Make, you know, um, in your market, the the it's a good idea to have an idea of what you're looking for when it comes to duplex. So you have a price um, and potentially rent so that when you talk to a mortgage professional, they have something to base those numbers off of to tell you whether or not you qualify. But states like California, you know, Southern California, very difficult to find duplexes that make sense. And, um, you know, from a from a financial standpoint, just because of how expensive they are, uh, a lot of this stuff is being purchased out of state. There are opportunities in other areas, you know, so, it, you know, I would say just explore your local market. If there's something there that works, fantastic. If not, you know, explore opportunities in, in some of these emerging markets that that there's potential growth in um, outside of your state. I mean, that's where I see a lot of these, you know, when I when I see people that own multiple doors, you know, these guys that own 50, 60, 70 investment properties, they're not located in Southern California, right? Um, and, and maybe that's not your goal, but what I'm getting at here is that there are just way more affordable opportunities in, in states outside of California, and that may be the best place to consider doing, um, you know, that sort of thing. And then, you, you know, we've got somebody also asking about five plus units. Um, you know, five plus units is commercial real estate, right? That's 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 no longer deemed residential. And uh, once you take the residential piece out of out of the equation here, Josh, do we do we go that? Are we doing this? Sorry, there we go. Yeah. Um, once you take the residential piece out of out of the equation, it becomes a whole different animal from a financing standpoint, from uh, you know a down payment standpoint, an interest rate stand, everything. Uh, and, and that whole commercial space, you're seeing headlines, you know, when they talk about a market that is uh, potentially crashing, there's turmoil coming, there's all of these different factors. Nine times out of 10, once you look at the the article and the data, they're talking about the commercial space. I mean, Grant Cardone was recently talking about opportunities to, to buy property, uh, you know, at significantly uh, undervalue and all of these things he's talking about commercial real estate. And that's because of all of these loans that are coming due, all of this money that was infused over the last couple of years on short-term um, adjustable rate mortgages that are going to adjust in a, in a space where, you know, these properties have vacancy and no longer cash flow and aren't going to be able to be refinanced. And so in that space, there's opportunities, but residential probably not uh, anytime soon, at least not on the horizon. And Jeb, part of, part of the reason for the risk in that space is it is very uncommon for a 30-year fixed mortgage. Maybe you could get it from a community bank, but they have a fixed period of anywhere from five to 10 years. They have prepayment penalties on them, so you're locked in for that time. Uh, and they either are going to switch to a variable with a much higher interest rate, or they're going to have a balloon on them that you're going to have to refinance at today's current higher interest rate. So bigger down payments, much different terms. So it's it's just a different space. All right. Uh, let's see. Got some questions coming in. Um, we'll go to Robert Val. Robert Uh, Can you guys make a case where it is better to rent than to own for a lifetime? Also, is it a normal thing for rent payments to be cheaper than a mortgage? In many markets, yeah, it, it is uh, normal, especially with interest rates where they are, house prices where they are. In many markets, rent is less of uh less expensive than owning a home and it might make sense in your market that you that you do decide to do that um it's also you can make the case pretty easily where it's better to to rent than own 
uh, if you're doing something with that difference in what your payment would be in, in, in a rent versus a mortgage payment in your market. I mean, if you're investing it correctly and you're, you know, actually putting that money aside, there can be a case made for it. Um, you know, especially if it's invested in the right thing where it makes more sense. But the reality is most people don't have the, the, um, what's the word I'm looking for? The discipline, Josh, to do what they need to do on a monthly basis to put that money away and, you know, invest in the right things to actually make it make sense over a lifetime. Thoughts? If you go back and look, um, Riverval, go back and look on the podcast page. We had a guest, Barry Habib, that very well covered these numbers and what they look like over a lifetime. In the short run, nearly every market in the United States is going to be more expensive than to own to own than to rent. And for the most part, that should be expected because as an owner, you get to uh, you have to finance it. You're going to have some principal reduction, so you're building up equity. You get to benefit from the appreciation on that property. So over the long haul, there's really no comparison. Owners come out far ahead but in the short run and people with short time horizons renting can be much better but as jeb pointed out the most important point is what are you doing with that savings if we're just spending every last nickel that we have the person that rents is going to be subject to rent inflation for the next 50 years and is going to arrive at retirement on a fixed income and not have a fixed payment so those are the big things but i, I would say jeb go back and look at, at the educated home buyer podcast episode with barry habib he did a really good job of running through those numbers better than we can in the context of the show yeah and and, and a lot of this is hypothetical right depending on what happens to rents what happens to uh interest rate like there's so many different factors that play into it so you can only control what you can control and if you look historically you know at the numbers homeowners have a 40 times greater net worth than those of renters because they've invested in real estate over the long term. So it's, it's a long, it's, it's, it's a long game. It's right. It's not going to happen in a year or two years and, you know, five years, especially in the markets that we're in now, it's something you got to look out way into the future. And uh, for many people that's difficult, but uh, if you're able to do it, you'll be sitting like your grandparents are now that bought their houses for 15, $20,000 in some markets out there. And, um, and, and they're worth millions. I mean, in fact, there's the house in my neighborhood that just came on the market for a million two seventy five. Um, I looked back to see how long they had owned the property and they were original owners. And I think they paid like 55 grand for it. And that was in 73 or so. And it's worth one, two, seven, five. And it doesn't look like they've done a thing to it since they've owned it. So, uh, they put no money into it and they came out way ahead. Uh, but anyway, we'll go to the flight simulation experience asking, are uh, any trusted agents in the Boise market? I don't like my agent. I do. I actually have a really good agent that I trust. I might actually be seeing her on Friday. Um, happy to refer you to her. Uh, just shoot me an email and um, and we can definitely make the connection for you if you need at least another opinion, somebody to talk to. Uh, Mina asking, what are your predictions for interest rate trends for the summer? Uh, I would say go back and listen to the Educated Home Buyer podcast that we just did this past week, uh, where we talked about the Fed, where we talked about a little bit what's likely to happen with rates and rate cuts. And, you know, as as the market slows, uh, which it's going to, the economy is going to slow and, and employment is is should slow. You're going to see the, the Fed start to cut rates, which in turn is going to lead to lower interest rates. And it should happen by summer. But to what degree? Hard to say. Um, Josh, if you want to add anything onto that, jump on it. No, the big thing is uh, Powell's 
was fairly adamant last week. We're, we're very unlikely to cut in March. He goes back on 60 Minutes uh, Sunday night, very adamant that they're not going to cut in March. We have a lot of data coming between now and then, and I don't think that data is going to be as strong as what they think. We're going on eight month. The eight month average of core PCE is at, at the, the number that they wanted to see, and we're likely to get to see two really good reads before we get there. We're going to have another jobs report before that time. So um, the market has an 80% chance they don't do anything. And then we don't have a, a meeting in April. So we really, between now and May, we only have two Fed meetings. So if the Fed is going to change their opinion, and that's what everyone is looking for, rates are likely to, to tread water between now and then. I would expect them to be slightly better, but not significantly. And we'll get to a few of these other questions about refinancing between now and then. It's going to impact that decision uh, as well. I don't think, and I don't. I think Jeb agrees with me, that the economy is not as strong as the government would like to portray right now. And we're going to see some of that weakness, but we need to see it before we're going to see any movement in interest rates. There we go. I was looking for the referral link. Somebody was asking for it. I was in the wrong thing there. So um that should be on there now and scroll in the bottom so if you need an agent and you need a referral in another state that link will get you there um so take your time and, and fill it out and you'll be connected and again i think a lot of people think you're going to be connected immediately what it's doing is it's sending your information to them so that they can reach out to you for many markets right now it's eight o'clock at night most people aren't working at eight o'clock at night so they're going to contact you in the morning um to have that conversation so hopefully that is helpful all right, uh, Josh, is there a site where the average consumer can go look up rent to own price differences? Is there a, a consumer site that you're aware of? Is there anything that you would consider better or worth pursuing beyond the Zestimate? We've talked about the limitations of the Zestimate for value, but they have a rent Zestimate in there as well. Um, to me, when I look, it usually understates what a property would rent for. The rent would be a little bit higher, but I don't know if there's anything any better, especially consumer facing where you're not paying for the data. Yeah. And, and I'm not aware of a site that you can go to and just look at a county uh, or a city and it tells you, hey, median rent, median price right in, in that area. Um, there very well could be uh, where you can run those numbers, but understand a lot of that information fluctuates based on where rates are and where different things are. So it would really have to be something that updates uh, daily to some degree to, to give you, you know, accurate numbers. So unfortunately, not really. But, you know, if you talk to an agent in your market, you sh they should be able to tell you, hey, you know, this is where the average rent is. And then obviously, you know, calculating mortgage payments is a little bit more difficult. But, you know, talking to a mortgage professional can get you, um, you know, a better idea of what that's going to be. So the easy answer is no, there's not that I'm aware of. Um, but if anybody is aware of something, you know, feel free to comment and, and let us know. And that way we can uh, get it to Rimstar who uh, is looking for, for something like that. Hey, maybe that's an opportunity. If you are technologically gifted and you understand markets, that there's an opportunity to create a site that people might be looking for. Um, I didn't mean to click on this one, but we'll go this uh, direction. I bought a house in April. I'm at a 6.6 .6 interest rate with an FHA. So that means 6.6 .6 plus 0.55, right? Or oh, April last year. Did we, were we at 0.55 then, Josh? Or were we 0.85 then? Yeah, it was 0.55. Okay, so 6.6 .6 plus 0.55, you're at 7.15%. Um, should I wait to refinance to a conventional loan or do an FHA streamline refinance now? So Josh, uh, where are rates today and what does that look like? 
So it's lower than that, six and a quarter, probably not enough to qualify in terms of the rate reduction that you need to be streamlined eligible. Um, so we, we need some more movement downwards. But the confounding factor for any of you considering this, I would almost always say we have our rule of thumb. 125,000 divided by your loan amount tells you how much you need to save. But FHA is a unique case there because you pay the upfront mortgage insurance premium when you do the loan, 1.75%. In the first 36 months, you'll get a prorated refund. But after like 18 months, that prorated refund is very small and you're adding another 1.75% back onto your loan. So can it be good? Can it be valuable? Absolutely. But make sure your loan professional is actually going through and showing you what those numbers look like because you have to account for it. Um, we're going to do a show of the podcast about refinancing right and making sure you're not lowering your monthly payment and interest rate, but the expense of putting yourself in a worse position over the long haul. And it is easier to do with uh, an FHA than any other type of loan. VA has a funding fee that is very similar to your upfront mortgage insurance premium. But when you come back and do an EARL, it's just a half percent funding fee. I really wish FHA would do that because paying 175 again, when you've already paid 175 and you're not new risk to that FHA mortgage insurance fund, it's a little bit crazy. So in terms of answering that, um, it can be a long time. If we see a market that's going up at three to 5% a year and you do a three and a half percent down FHA, it could be five, six, seven years before you can go to conventional and get rid of the mortgage insurance. You don't have to do an 80% or less conventional, but uh, it's nice because you can get rid of that mortgage insurance. So run the numbers, have a loan officer do the comparison for you and make sure you're accounting for the fact that you are going to pay an additional upfront mortgage insurance premium on the streamline. All right. Good stuff, guys. So, all right. Um, we, we answered that one. Uh, Rich said he appreciates us both. Appreciate you too. Um, so guys, here's the deal. For the better part of three years, um, kind of let whatever slide in the comments. Like, hey, you could comment on me. You could comment on Josh. You could say we're dumb. I don't really care. It doesn't really affect me. But I've come to the conclusion that it doesn't benefit anyone in the chat when that stuff comes up. And quite frankly, I don't have the time for it. So they're going to be deleted, um, banned from the channel. And that's just the way it is. So, it, you know, it's here for positivity. Josh and I put a lot of time and effort into being here every Wednesday to provide you guys with information. So if people come in and are acting dumb and, and dumb comments and have no benefit to, to you guys as a viewer of the channel or as a listener, they're just going to be done. Um, so you'll see people make comments and they're going to be deleted. So, you know, that, and it's not because we're trying to keep their, their, their opinion away from everybody or what it's just, there's no value in it. And therefore it's, it's gone. Um, with that, Josh got a question on somebody asking about a VA loan, using it for the second time to buy a house. Uh, do you recommend doing it? So the only difference between using it for a subsequent use and the first time use is if you're doing it again with zero down, you're going to pay a big upfront or a VA funding fee. So instead of the 2.1, it's going to go to 3.3 if you do zero down. But if you made money on the first home and you're going to put 5% down, 10% down, it's a little bit lower, a little bit more manageable, but you're still going to pay that funding fee. What you're getting in return is the VA interest rate is much lower. The qualifying is easier. Debt to income is easier less restrictive on credit scores. So it, the numbers never lie. You want to do a side-by-side -side comparison. If you walked away from the last place and you got 40 or 50% to put down, maybe the conventional loan could, could make sense. But for most people, 
if they're able to put a down payment, it's still going to lean towards VA. If they're looking at that subsequent use funding fee at 3.3%, it's real money. That's $10,000 on a $300,000 purchase, 20 grand on a $600,000 purchase. So it's something to take into account. Um, I would lean towards, yes, use the VA, but you got to run the numbers and make the decision for yourself. And, and the caveat there, Jeb, would always be if you have a service-related disability, if you're a Purple Heart recipient, you are exempt from the, the funding fee. And then it would always make sense to use your VA benefit. All right, good stuff. I had a question. Somebody asked me the question yesterday, Josh, and I'll just throw it your way. So this one isn't on um, the channel per se, but it's a good question. Somebody said, I have 20% down to do uh, to, 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 to buy a house. Um, I'm running the numbers with FHA and I'm running the numbers at conventional. And it looks to me like the numbers with FHA, even with the mortgage insurance included, seem to be a little bit better than conventional. Therefore, I'm thinking of going FHA. And I said, oh, well, let's hold up. Let's talk about this. Um, one thing is mortgage insurance is no longer tax deductible. So you're, you're you know, with with the um, the FHA, while, you know, part of that payment is going to be mortgage insurance. But that aside, Josh, what are your thoughts when somebody looks at it that way and how should they approach it if they're considering that? With the 20% down in general, and it varies over time, the difference between conventional rate to FHA rate. But it's about three quarters of a percent right now, close to three quarters of a percent. But for this 20% down borrower, you have a 0.5% mortgage insurance. So now we're, we're only a quarter percent better. And now we go back and say, you're going to make an upfront mortgage insurance premium of 1.75. So you put 20% down, then they add 1.75 back onto that loan. To me, that's the equivalent to paying 1.75 points. So if we really want to do apples to apples, now what's the conventional loan paying 1.75 points, and it's going to be considerably lower. It's going to be, you know, the effective interest rate should be lower. So other than someone, if someone comes in with a 640 credit score, Jeb, we ran the numbers on this 640 credit score, it's going to be high sevens on that rate versus low to mid sixes on an FHA. Now you start seeing a differential where it could make sense, but assuming you have a 680, a 700 plus credit score, uh, I think if you were truly getting an apples to apples comparison, it's going to lean towards conventional, even though the FHA might have a lower monthly payment. Good stuff. Uh, didn't, you know, when, when I had that conversation, didn't even think about the upfront mortgage uh, premium. So great point there. Um, let's see. Uh, Krista had a good question here. And then there's another question on uh, commission that we'll talk about in a minute. So Krista asked the question, what would you guys recommend for sellers that have homes that are stagnant on the market? Um, tough to say, right? So, you know, um, if I can use Matt as an example that was here in the chat earlier, I'm, I don't know if Matt's still here, but Matt had a property in LA area last year that wasn't selling last year or the year before. I don't remember. And so um, I told Matt, hey, send me the link. And one of the things that I, I noticed initially was that I didn't think the photos were very good. Um, so I said, hey, when you're when you're doing this, you know, outside of price, right? Price is always the most important piece um, because you can lower a home enough that regardless of what photos you use, what you do to the house, you're going to sell it. But that's not the goal for most people, right? People are trying to maximize price, maximize time, all of these different factors. So that's one thing that I noticed immediately when looking at it, like, hey, look, I think the pictures could be better. Um, so you kind of got to start from the beginning, right? Where are you priced versus comparable homes in the market? How long have you actually been on the market? What does stagnant mean? Um, and some of these questions you can answer. And we'll talk about it, but stagnant for some people is, hey, my home's been on the market three weeks and it hasn't sold. Okay, that's that's okay. 
right? The, the average market time right now in Huntington Beach or in Orange County is about 45 or so days. That's average. And that's because some homes take 100 days. Some homes sell in two or three days, right? There's It, it doesn't mean your home's going to sell immediately because there is less buyer demand out there. Um, you know, homes that are priced correctly, though, and are turnkey, and at least in my market, seem to be the homes that are still moving the fastest. Homes that need some work, homes that are overpriced, homes that have funky layouts, homes where agents haven't done the right things to market the home, uh, to, to get the most exposure, are the homes that typically have problems. Another thing is, this is something, buyer commission. Are you offering a buyer's commission? If you aren't, right, this is something that is going to be routinely um, going to come up in conversation now because it's it's one of those talking pieces where it's it's going to determine the the amount of demand that that some property sees. So there's a lot going on there. So really hard to to answer without seeing the house per se. If you're local, um, as an agent, a broker, I can't really give you advice on on these things, but I'm happy to look at it from a friendly standpoint. Um, but if you're outside of the state, outside of the area, really hard to do. Um, but I'm happy to refer you to somebody in your market if you need another opinion. All right. Hopefully that was helpful. Um, and then we had another question here, Josh, on buyer commission asking about 1%. Is 1% a good commission for an agent to help me during contract for a new construction? Lenara will not pay for commission and the max out of pocket I can afford is no more than five or six grand. You know, good is relative. Um, for some agents, 1% might be great. Um, other agents, it's not going to be quite as uh, as good of a commission. Can you find somebody to do it for 1%? Probably. Um, I would say that most agents aren't going to work for 1% uh, in most markets out there just because of, of time. You know, they're not getting that full 1%, right? They're paying uh, their office, their, their broker, they're paying taxes, they're paying all of the different things that come out of that. And so it could very well be worth it it might not be worth it. Difficult to say. Um, so to each his own in that sort of scenario. Uh, me personally, I wouldn't do it, but that's that's just me. Um, so you gotta you gotta kind of shop around. If you need some, some referrals of agents, again, I'm happy to put you in touch with somebody, but I can't guarantee that they're they're you know gonna gonna do that. But that's for you guys to to figure out and negotiate. Jeb, we got a couple of questions that are pretty similar here. We can knock them both out. Willie yep. says, if I buy a, if I buy a new primary, they just bought their their primary. So if they buy a yep. new primary, can I rent the car? Is they their pronoun? It's the only one because they've claimed to be male and female at different times. So I go with they, them in Willie's case. They are a okay. They, fair enough. I don't know. We're don't proper know. here. We, you know, we've been we, misled. We, we've been misled. We no, no, there's no misled. They, that's who they are. They are they. Okay. they that's who they them. are. They so, so they they own their home purchased recently. Can they uh, buy a new primary residence and use the rental income to off that offset that expense when applying for a new loan? The answer is yes. So you can use 75% of the rents to offset the payment. So the issue is going to be with going back to that question of rent versus own or the, the, the cost of renting versus owning, it's probably going to rent for less than what your payment is. And when you only get 75% of that to allow for a maintenance vacancy expense factor, it's going to probably have a fairly large negative. But yes, you can do it. Um, Aaron, similar question. Uh, good to see you again, Jeb. Aaron's Aaron's it, back. It's, it's he a went off. Yes, he yes. went back, off and back. But one question: If I want to buy a new primary residence and live in it, rent out the existing one, is there any catch or limitation? No limitation. It's really just 
the qualifying. Do, do you qualify? In most situations, if you bought recently, and then definitely if you bought after the pandemic era, super low rates, it's going to be hard for that thing to be positive. But some of those people, you know, that bought in 2020, early 2021, and it's appreciated 30, 40%, they have a 2.75 interest rate. It can be close to break even for them, and it could present a, an option there. But can you think of any catches or anything to, to look for there, Jeb, other than the potential? I mean, the, the only catch is, is that you can't use 100% of that rent uh rent to qualify right you're going to be limited um to 75 percent or whatever your taxes show depending on how long you've had it and um so that's really the, the only thing that you need to uh to think about um that i can think of uh, other than what josh said so hopefully that's helpful uh another one mina gave us a three dollar super sticker thanks mina uh for the super sticker uh, unfortunately in the in the chat that we use in Streamyard, it doesn't actually show us the sticker we have to look at it on youtube and it's very difficult to see. So um, we'll have to see the sticker after the fact. I hope it's a great sticker, but, you know, to be determined. Uh, Rich, if I'm close. Oh. Okay, we didn't answer. We didn't answer this question. It looks similar to another question. If I'm closing at 6.75, would I be crazy to refinance within the year? Say the market drops over a point. No, absolutely not. No, mm -hmm. not at all. Um, I refinanced in two months after closing. Um, but most time it's, it's like a six month period or so. So, and the larger, the larger the loan, the less you need it to move. So right. uh, if we get a full percent move, almost anyone with a loan, $150,000 and above is going to benefit from a refinance. So could that happen? Could happen if it does. Yeah. You're going to want to refinance. Uh, you know, question, um, asking about, bullish sentiment. Uh, so Barbara Corcoran, um, has come out and said that buy ever, buy whatever you can, buy whatever you can afford, just get something as prices will just go up forever. 2008 was a once in a lifetime event. I don't say, I, I don't completely disagree with the, the, the statement. Um, I do feel like it's very, very optimistic, um, it, that prices can't come down for any reason at all. And I, you know, I, don't necessarily, I don't agree with that. Um, there, there's a lot of things that could happen that could allow prices to come down. But at the end of the day, nothing happens without an increase in supply um, to the point where you've got infinitely more properties than you have willing demand. We're a long ways from that at the moment. So could this be the case for the next couple of years? Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, prices could continue to go up. Is it going to happen forever? I don't know. I, I just, I mean, obviously she's very smart. She owned a real estate company. Um, she's done very well in her lifetime. Um, she's not really, what I will say is that she's not in a position where she really well, needs she to, to worry out, about it. Yeah. Where she needs to go out and tell anybody um, that they need to buy real estate because she's personally going to benefit. I mean, she sold Corcoran uh, to uh, anywhere, which is um, same company that owns Coldwell Banker, which is where I work. And that was done a long time ago. So She's not directly benefiting from from making that statement. So, I mean, she clearly believes that. But, you know, it's uh it's 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 bullish. It's definitely Jeff, bullish. Let's let's look at it this way. Of all of the things that we watch and track, the the one wild card that could be a train that I don't want to step in front of is the the federal debt. We don't know how that's going to play out and and it could, I mean, 
there, there is a plausible way that it could result in hyperinflation that could change everything um, in ways that we don't even understand because it's beyond it's so outside of the realm of what we've seen in 250 years as a country that we don't we don't even know what that would look like. But it's something yeah. that, that could cause it. There's other black swans that we can't even think of right now, literally cannot think of. What if what if COVID had wiped out 50 percent of the population? Home prices would have dropped like massively because anyone could have whatever home they want because there's half of the population to fight with. So things can happen. So I would never want to say that. But here are some numbers that I like to tell people to focus on. Right now, the average loan to value in the United States is 46%. 40% of people roughly own their home free and clear. So 60% of the people owe less than half of what it's worth. Mm -hmm. And most of them, what's the number? 80% Jeb is under 5%? Uh, 80 three percent is under five something like that yeah so either no loan or a small loan at a very low interest rate so their alternative for putting a roof over their head sucks relative to their reality of owning so absent forced selling where they literally hey i can't afford this house rent is going to be more wherever i go but i can't afford it wherever i got to harvest whatever equity i can and i'll eat the seeds to put a roof over my head until my fortunes turn around you're not going to see mass selling or mass forced selling. Um, that doesn't mean the home prices can't come down. So in general, Corcoran's on the right track, but there are certainly things where, where prices could be flat or could decrease. It's just when you look at those numbers, you have a recipe for ultra low sales volume for a long time if things don't look better for people to buy and sell homes versus a crash in prices. Every time we've seen a crash in prices in, in California, in California, Southern California, the Bay Area, we've seen them periodically over the last 40, 50 years. And they're almost always characterized by a large percentage of the homes available in the MLS being bank owned. Banks don't want to own properties. Just like a, a builder wants to get that thing off their books, replenish their money and go build more homes, a builder wants to get their money back, how much ever they can. So we just don't have a recipe for the mass forced sales that we've had in the past. So it's it'll be interesting. Prices are higher than they logically should be based off of that brief period of ultra low interest rates that we had, but it also creates the incentive to, to never give that property up unless they're prying it out of your cold dead hands. Yeah, I read a stat yesterday that I'm going to just kind of read off here. There was no chart. Otherwise, I would have put this in to start with. But mortgage holders gained $1.6 trillion in equity in 2023 to reach an to reach an aggregate of $16 trillion. So people with mortgages gained $1.6 trillion in equity last year. That's the highest year in total ever on record. And two-thirds of that was held by borrowers with credit scores of 760 or higher. So two-thirds of that $1.8 trillion, people have really good credit. So for those out there that are waiting on the people that are going to lose their jobs and they're going to default and they're going to – typically speaking, the good ones with good credit aren't the people that are going to be that. Now, a one-third have less than a 760, but to what number? We don't know. It's not going to be a 620, right? Those, those, those mortgages are pretty much done. Another thing is the average mortgage holder – now has $300,000 in equity. The average, $300,000 in equity, and 193,000 of that is tappable, which means once they pulled out that 193, they still have 20% equity in their property. So if values were to drop 15, 20%, you still see how much equity is in the system. Now, not everyone has that, but we're talking about a big number of people. So it's, it's one of those things like, Josh, I, I always say, people have very short memories, right? They, they only remember 
like the things that happened most recently. It's except when it goes to the housing crash. Everybody wants to remember the housing crash. They don't remember, you know, um, anything around that. You know, that is the one staple in their mind. And, and a lot of it's because a lot of the buyers right now, you know, were kids. Um, they had family members lose houses. They they were they suffered in some way because of that, and so it's made an impact. It's you know it's had an impression on their thinking, and unfortunately, you know, and fortunately, you're not going to see that again. Um, you know, for for many reasons, that the crash isn't going to happen again, at least n- not anytime soon, unless you have again that major black swan event that that where something happens outside of the real estate world that somehow impacts real estate where you have infinitely more sellers on the market. And I just don't know what that looks like. You pointed out another thing there in that, Jeb. If we look at the comp, the composition of mortgages made over the last 15 years since the, the great financial crisis, those loans have been made to the strongest hands ever. And they get stronger by the year. Like right now, the buyers are putting more money down and have higher FICO scores. The debt to income is stressed, but just because the affordability is 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 really strained. So in a, in a million different ways, not just the ones that you know from watching the big short, 2007, 2008 was the perfect storm, including the the bank's response. The bank said, hey, it's moral hazard if we give these people an assist. Well, if you had given them an assist and you had forgiven some of their debt, you would have ended up in a much better position than taking back their house and going, oh, geez, I got 27 houses on this street now that me or another bank have to sell. So it was worse than it needed to be for a million different reasons that if you don't dig into the data, and you don't know what happened. It's almost hard to understand why that just won't ever happen again. Now, uh, this comment, you know, kind of just disregard the beginning of it, but um, it just says, imagine buying a home when 50% of the buyers pulled out basically during the pandemic. And and the reason I bring this up is because I had a property in Laguna Beach in this little building um, right by uh, Victoria, not Victoria Beach. um, Can't think of the little beach right there. Anyway, right on PCH, small building. They allowed uh, short-term rentals in there. And I had this property on the market right as as the pandemic hit. My client um, is Italian. And if you were paying attention at all, Italy was on full lockdown. Like she couldn't leave. I mean, it was like full panic mode, right? And so she owned the property free and clear, but she was starting to panic because of everything happening. And, you know, you couldn't show, there was just so many things going on. And she basically was like, I want to sell this property at whatever cost and and get rid of it. So we started lowering the price and I was really, really close, Josh, to buying this home. Like I thought like, hey, maybe this is an opportunity, but I really had no idea. Like at that point, I wasn't making any money because we couldn't do anything. And I'm like, maybe, you know, I'm setting myself up for disaster here. God, had you bought that property? Like it's probably gone up twofold in the last three years, three and a half years from when when that time, just because- you know, not only did, you know, could you have gotten a bargain on it because of price and her wanting to move, but rates ended up coming significantly lower. You could have refinanced, you could do short-term rentals. So what, so yeah. what did it sell for and what's it worth today? You know, I think it, I think it ended up selling for like 375. We started at like 425, I think. Um, it needed a remodel on the inside, but I, I honestly don't know what it's worth today. It's probably worth seven or 800,000 easily yeah. just based on the location. Yeah. So there, there are opportunities in every market. Um, you know, just got to be able to to weed past the fear, and sometimes uh, the fear gets the better part of you. And it did Jeremy, me, and, that, and that's 
situation. Yeah, what's up? Yeah, Jeremy's been super patient here and, oh. and asked a question here earlier. Um, I'm within 45 to 60 day close window. Could technically lock this week. With the CPI data coming out next week, do you think it's a risk to wait until that release? And they followed up with the 10 year has been trending backwards since the hot employment data last Friday. Um, I'll throw something out there, Jeb, and then you give me your two cents yep. on it. We have hit like four, one, nine, five, six, seven times now, and it is held as a fairly firm 2024 ceiling. Doesn't mean that it's guaranteed. And we showed that we have 427, a backstop behind that. So not a lot of risk there. So the question to me is, what's the reward? If we get to that CPI data and, and it's a zero month over month reading and we're you know lower than what people are imagining, you're going to see a rally. Um, how much? How much is it? What, what could we possibly gain by that? I don't know. I would say your risk of not locking is maybe an eighth before you just capitulated and said, I'm locking it. And your potential gain is a quarter, maybe three eighths. I don't see any huge moves until the fed actually pulls the trigger yeah um i agree uh for the most part um again i, I think the cpi data is kind of baked into the cake right people know the cpi numbers are going to come in um at you know significantly lower than last year's numbers and and we're going to see a drop do we see uh, a bigger drop than is expected if so little rally um probably nothing crazy Opposite of that, it ticks up a little bit. You see the market go up a little bit. Do I think we could break the 419 area? I do just, but 417, whatever Josh mentioned, uh, but it's not going to go much higher than that, at least not without additional data. So I think the risk to the high side is on the a little bit lower. Uh, but I, I think there's a bigger thing happening out there with um, the commercial space and New York. What's the bank, Josh? Um, that we're already starting to see New York, whoever bought uh, Silicon Valley Bank. NYCB is a New York commercial bank. Is that what it yeah, is? Yeah, whatever. NYCB. The one, yeah, the, the one that's out there trending. That has the potential to impact the 10-year in a more meaningful way, per, I think, than maybe even CPI um, if if they go, if if maybe that, them, and or another bank comes up. I mean, did you read that, that thing I sent you today, Josh, about the commercial space? Um, in the charts that I sent you? Yeah, you did. Yeah. And, and so it was really interesting in the, in that last year, about this time, February, March, um, the fed basically came out and allowed these commercial banks to borrow money, um, to essentially help out their balance sheet because of everything happening in the commercial space. Now, I think it happened as of about March, right? Because that's when SVB happened. So, you know, what's what's not really talked about is that these banks had a year to pay this amount of money back. Um, and so now we're coming up to the end of that year and you're starting to see some capitulation with the NYCB. What other banks out there are having stress, having issues? Hard to say. Now, does the Fed step in again and reissue something? Maybe. Um, but I think there's an opportunity there for potentially more turmoil on that side. And that could have a an impact on on the ten year rates, everything, uh, which could end up benefiting you. Um, but hard to say, right? I mean, this is it's 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 so volatile right now. There's so the littlest moves in 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 data either way can have a larger impact than what we believe just because of how it's interpreted um, from one party versus another and and what have you. So. I would say if you're comfortable with the rate, lock it, 
move on. Don't stress about it and get an opportunity to refinance and and hopefully later in the year if if you know everything um, does as we think it's going to do. And, and really, it comes down to that forty-five to sixty-day window, Jeb. I don't think either one of us see uh, an appreciable move in that in that forty-five to sixty-day window, one way or the other. Right? Not not a big enough drop where you're going to benefit from it, Jeb. We got a, a comment here, a question. JW eight thousand says uh, four nine nine on an FHA thirty year and a take it and run, buddy. <laughs> so here at the top of the show, we showed the averages nationwide are about six and a quarter right now. Um, should be lower than that for people with good credit. They should be just a tick under six percent. But what I will say, I have a friend just went under contract. We got her pre-approved. She tells me, hey, I'm looking at, at new construction. So she goes out. I said, they're going to make you pre-approve with them. See what the number is. They were offering her a $30,000 incentive on a $550,000 property. That's pretty awesome. So they wanted $20,000 to buy it down to five and a quarter. I could have done that for $10,000, but mm -hmm. who was going to pay the $10,000? So you end up, some of it is smoke and mirrors with the builders in terms of their lender. It's going to be more expensive to get them to those rates. But at the end of the day, it doesn't matter whether they say it's ignore what they're saying. The incentive is just say, well, what does it cost me net? And what is my interest rate? 499, if they're covering the majority of the cost is an amazing interest rate. Agreed. Agreed. Absolutely. Um, question that's different than anything else here, Josh. Would you be? Would you rather be able to speak another language or play a musical instrument? Because you can't do either. So, which would you? Which would you rather have? I mean, one would make you more money. The I, other I would better. just be a cool talent to 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 have. I got a follow up question. Right. Uh, I'm going to go with the instrument. So then, okay. the question then, Jeb, is if you say instrument, what instrument? Oh, acoustic guitar for sure. If I could just pull out a guitar at like and just Jeb. play random songs, that's fantastic. Jeb, you're not 19 sitting on the East Carolina but I would campus be. waiting for the ladies to walk by no, and no, no, be no, impressed no. by your herringbone. It's like sitting by in your you know, fire pit skills. in the backyard uh, guitar. I think that there's something to that. I, I envy people that can just listen to something and play it. I think it's awesome. Um, speaking a language would make me infinitely more money. Uh, and I, I think I'd have to go with the language. If I could be fully fluent in another language, it know, will make you more money. Where, oh, absolutely. It'll make you more money. So no, the, sure. it, the practical thing is the language, but in the real world, if I could be a, a, a master of the jazz flute, it would be, it would be worth its weight in gold being able to do that. Uh, willing said that, uh, another follow-up said he helped name our show, the educated home buyer. So, about two years ago, guys, we voted. I put a couple names out there. The educated home buyer was was what you guys voted on, so that became the podcast. Um, and I guess Willing has a a pup that uh, we need to name. Um, and one of the name is what do we have? What are what are our options? Put in the options here. Cashmere. It's just, it's just they have already been listing them. Cashmere, and it would be cash for short. Okay. You thought I would enjoy? They thought I would enjoy that. Um, let's see. We got others here. Oh, and it's going to be a Shih Tzu Maltese mix. So is that a Malt Tzu, I believe is what they call those. Um, do you like Fanny for Fanny Mae, um, Killian or Stella or Cashmere? I got to I got to be honest. I don't like any of them. I don't like any of them. But I am the person that will have a dog for three or four weeks before it gets a name because it takes a while for the perfect one to hit. You know, um, you know, out of out of the choices. You know, Cash is a good dog's name, um, but I'm, I'm picturing the dog. I just don't picture that dog being a Cash. I'm thinking a Stella, not a Stella, Stella. Stella, that, a Stella Artois. <laughs> yeah, there you go. 
and so I, I say Stella. You go with Stella. Um, it'll remind you of of your favorite drink every time you you say it. And um, you know, we had friends one time, Josh. You remember they had a dog named Dude, and I thought, what a clever name. Like, come here, just, dude. Yeah, dude. let's go, dude. Like, let's go, dude. Like, I think so. If I ever get a dog, the the dog's name is Dude because it, that's what I would say to the dog anyhow. So I just feel like it it works. We have, we have uh, anyway. an important important question. Enough time travel wants to know: Is it a boy or a girl? Because then uh, Willing followed up with, "How about Freddie for Freddie Mac?" I like Freddie a lot more than Fanny. Um, I if it's a boy, I'm I am I am partial to Clyde. I like Clyde. Clyde. All right, Clyde. The dog's name is Clyde or Winston. Winston. You know, I, why not? I just you know, we were at dinner the other night and somebody said that I was going to get Pull a dog and the dog's name was Winston. So I figured, you know, we just throw it out there. Um, anyway, guys, it is six o'clock. We've been on here for an hour. Started slow, picked up a little bit at the end there. Uh, but appreciate you guys being here every week and showing up and asking questions and helping the podcast grow. If you haven't done so already, check out the Educated Home Buyer YouTube channel, the podcast. If you've listened to it, you like it, subscribe rate us, review us, all of that stuff helps push it out there, especially the rating and reviewing. And you can actually do a rate and review um, by going to theeducatedhomebuyer.com and checking out the website there. You can log into those platforms and do all that good stuff. So if you need us, there's a link scroll in the bottom. Josh, how can people get in touch with you? Well, info at the Educated Homebuyer is easy. So if you have a question for either of us, it comes through there. Um, if you go and look uh, on, on my website, buywisemortgage.com, it's got all my contact info and it has a cute little inquiry form where you can see videos. The Educated Homebuyer has a video of Jeb talking about how you could transact with us. Uh, and uh, any and all of those will be, uh, will be uh, the, all paths lead back to Josh. So you're good. All right, guys, we will be back next Wednesday in some format here to talk to you guys. And uh, until then, check us out on the other channels. Like and subscribe. Adios. Amigos. Thanks for listening to The Educated Homebuyer. Want to connect with us or to a local expert in your area? Please reach out at theeducatedhomebuyer.com slash expert. If you found any value today, please be sure to rate and review us on your favorite podcast platform. In addition, we ask that you share it with your friends and subscribe to us on YouTube and make sure to follow us on social media. Thanks again for listening.